from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Skartal in the world of Wikipedia and elsewhere. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is A brand new kid to show biz With knowledge I persevere But if I now do me a favor, favor. Let me in here And we can find a rhyme to fill in space And drop the bass with a taste of It's a Saturday afternoon And I must say I'm, I'm feeling better today than I did yesterday I'm recording today because uh, my wife Diane's out of the house I always feel really weird recording this thing when she's around For some reason, I don't know I'll do the Veteran Gamers podcast Which is another show I do with some awesome guys from the UK and uh, I don't mind doing that when she's around because I don't feel silly because I know I'm talking to actual people on the headset. But when I'm doing this show, for some reason, it just feels weird to be doing it while she's here. So I always want to do it while she's gone. Uh, she does a weekly radio show uh, at WORT here in Madison. Uh, it's an awesome show called Her Turn. And uh, yeah, so she's off working on that today. So I have a little time to do this. I had to leave school yesterday on Friday because I was just feeling horrible. I had this exhaustion, uh, my head hurt, my stomach hurt, and uh, big sh- big thanks to Chris Stensrud, the guy who covered my class on Friday, my last class of the day, and uh, I really appreciate that. So I owe him two now, one for the book and one for that. And yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm convinced that there is a sort of an epidemic of insomnia among educators. The more I teach, the more evidence I see of us being just completely overloaded with all this stuff we're constantly responsible for. And I think it's unique to education. I think there's something about teaching, especially teaching in a public high school. And it's probably true about elementary and middle school too. But there's so much you have to keep track of. You could have a to-do list, and I have a to-do I have several to-do lists. But that doesn't fix it because you always have to be thinking about what I need to give to that kid and what I want to get from this place and I need to take this thing down to the front office and I have to send this stuff out to be copied and I got to make sure I check the email and I have to call this parent back and I need to make sure I bring this book and there's just hundreds and hundreds of things because you have hundreds of people coming in and out of your room all day long and if you mess up, it's on you. There's very little leeway given to teachers. And I don't think there should be leeway given to teachers. But the point I would make is that anytime we talk about class size doesn't matter, anybody who says, oh, class size doesn't matter. And this is actually a trend in, in education reform today is people saying, oh, class size doesn't matter. All that matters is you have a really great teacher in front of the room and a student who is in front of a great teacher is going to do better even if there's, you know, a class of 30 or 35. Well, that doesn't matter because the teacher's doing a good job. They're bound to do better for the student than a mediocre teacher with a smaller class. Well, I'm not going to argue that it's good to have good teachers in front of the classroom, but the idea that class size doesn't matter is ludicrous. Anybody who says that has never taught a class because when you have... 30 kids in a class instead of 25. It's not as though there's a little more work for the teacher. It's 
it's an ins- it's a significant addition of stress and work when you have five more students in a class. And this is why we demand that classes have, you know, classes be small at the earliest grades because we know the minds are uh, most susceptible to good work back then. And I don't know, I think it's important to have small classes at the high school level too. But as soon as you say that, people are like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter. So whatever, I think we should have smaller classes, but that's just me. Uh, let's talk about what's going on in the world. The big news of the week is that Charles Taylor got convicted. Boom! In your face! What? From the Guardian, uh, Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, has been found to have aided and abetted war crimes by a UN-backed tribunal in The Hague. After four years of hearings at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the disgraced one-time guerrilla leader was found to have provided sustained support for rebels during their reign of terror in the neighboring West African state. He was also said to have participated in the planning of certain attacks, including the assault on Freetown, this capital of Sierra Leone. The judge said Taylor would be sentenced on the 30th of May after a hearing on the 16th of May. So we're going to keep our eyes peeled for what the sentence is going to be for this guy. Uh, There's a huge war that went on for years and years and years. And while we talk about the civil war that took place in Sierra Leone, uh, we should also mention the fact that uh, there was a really interesting group of women who stood up and said, we demand an end to this war, and they made it happen through nonviolent protest. And there's a documentary film called Pray the Devil Back to Hell, which I haven't actually seen yet, but I hear really good things. And you can read about this group of women uh, on the internet. It's a fascinating story. Uh, if you do a search for the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace, uh, it's a group of people, a group of women from Liberia who demanded an end to the Civil War there, and it had to do with Charles Taylor because the war from Sierra Leone was spilling over into Liberia. Uh, and it's just a fascinating story about uh, people making a change and demanding an end to a war through nonviolent means. And a lot of people have this notion that, oh, you, you know, only violence stops violence. But you know what? It's not the only thing that stops it. We talked about uh, Gene Sharp last week and the Women of Liberia Mass Action for Peace is an awesome movement that everyone should know about because it shows that nonviolent action works today uh, and it can work in other situations. So I just wanted to give a shout out to them. Meanwhile, speaking of justice for people who deserve it, there was news this week from Business Week and elsewhere. Uh, an executive from BP got charged finally for the uh, big disaster in the Gulf that took place, you know, two years ago. Uh, U.S. prosecutors in New Orleans said Tuesday that Kurt Mix, who worked on internal BP efforts to estimate the amount of oil leaking from the well, deleted electronic messages between him and his supervisor. Uh, he was charged with two counts of obstruction of justice. And the question, of course, is why? Why would the Justice Department go after such a low-level guy on charges that sound so peripheral? Well, as Business Week puts it, the short answer is this is how the federal government handles white-collar criminal investigations. Prosecutors lean on small players in hopes they will plead guilty in exchange for a more lenient sentence and point a finger at people further up the corporate ladder. And I would love to see Tony Hayward get you know, sentenced by some sort of tribunal. Uh, you can have your life back in a prison cell, buddy, because... Come on, people, let's be honest. This is no longer quoting from Business Week. I would hope that's obvious. 
BP and Deepwater Horizon and Trans Ocean, whatever the hell a company was, they were freaking criminally negligent, yeah? And and nobody's, this is the first person that's been sentenced and, it, you know, first person that's been charged and I want to see people up the BP ladder get charged because it's not as though... The, it's this it's this fallacy of empires and ineptitude. I talked about this before on my blog. I don't know if I've mentioned it here on the Sincast, but I'm talking about it now. There's this this myth, this notion that goes around that says people at the top of these corporations, you know, and this is what we saw in the wake of the 2008 economic disaster. We saw it. Reagan was sort of the first guy to pioneer it, and after that, it was just like open the floodgates because it worked for Reagan, and so it'll work for other people too. The notion is. We had no idea what was going on in our corporation. Well, you know what? Here's here's the point. You should have known. Yeah? You should have known what was going on in your corporation and you should and if if your corporation cut corners as BP did and if you your sub your uh, subsidiary uh, took shorts and they purposely uh, falsified records and all the rest of it, you should have known as the CEO of this company, you should have had better control over your subsidiaries and you should be held responsible for what these subsidiaries did. And I'm a little sick of seeing uh, these companies get, you know, the, the, the executives who make all the profits, the shareholders who make all the profits, they don't get held responsible for what these companies do. And they have a term for it in the world of corporations. It's called externalizing the costs. And, and this is a way of saying, look, the U.S. government, I mean, you know, okay, look, BP had to pay for the cleanup in the Gulf. In the Gulf, but let's be honest. They did. They paid for the basic rounding up of the oil they could possibly find. But that's that's. It's not like you drop a basketball in the street and you just pick up the basketball and you go home. That's not how oil spills work. It diffuses itself into the rest of the ecosystem, and fish die, and shrimp die, and the shrimpers suddenly have a tremendous loss of revenue, and people suffer, and communities lose money, and all the rest of it. So BP got charged a little bit of. Money and they had to pay for the cleanup. But you know what? As I've said before, this is the formula we heard about from Fight Club. They they budget some of the money. They go, oh, we have to do damage control, and they put an extra two million in for PR. And then they go, okay, whatever, bad year, screw it. What are we going to do next year to make up that money? And 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 it's not about holding people criminally responsible as they should be held. And as Ha Jun Chang points out in Twenty Three Things I Don't Teach You About Capitalism. This is to do with the fact that shareholders and limited liability corporations, they, they don't they have anybody that gets held responsible. And as a result, it's all about this short-term profit. And meanwhile, forget about the, the stakeholders, forget about the communities, forget about the rest of it. It's just about making that profit. And that's by design, people. So I, I'm sick of it. Anyway, this is good news that somebody at BP got charged. I just hope that they keep going with it and nail somebody higher up on the ladder because I don't want to see this get swept under the rug. Oh, it was people at the lower levels. You know what? You should have known what was going on. Ought to be held responsible. Um, In the Middle East, there was news from Reuters this week that Israel's top general says Iran unlikely to make a bomb. Uh, yeah, this guy, uh, Gantz, uh, the top general in Israel, said uh, he does not believe Iran will decide to build an atomic bomb. He calls its leaders, the leaders of Iran, very rational. And these are comments that clash with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's assessment. Uh, Gantz said, Iran is moving step by step towards a point where it will be able to decide if it wants to make a nuclear bomb. It has not decided yet whether to go the extra mile. 
Uh, now, of course, Iran's supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei could opt to produce nuclear weapons should he believe that Iran would not face reprisal. But, Gantz says, in my opinion, he will be making a huge mistake if he does that, and I don't think he'll want to go the extra mile. I think, the, this is still quoting Gantz, I think the Iranian leadership is comprised of very rational people. But, I agree, such a capability in the hands of Islamic fundamentalists, who at some moments may make different calculations, is a dangerous thing. So, this, you know, the point he's making is, it doesn't seem sensible to think that these people will risk their very existence by trying to develop a nuclear weapon. And of course, Gantz conveniently left out any mention of Israel's nuclear weapon, uh, and I dare say people in Iran would look at Israel and go, yeah, you know what, I think a nuclear weapon in the hands of these Jewish fundamentalists is pretty messed up. Uh, but we don't hear that, because you can't say that, because now you're being anti-Semitic. Oh my god, no I'm not. Anyway, uh, this reminded me of something else that I wanted to talk about real briefly, and that is, there are no battlefields in the world anymore. They don't, we don't have battlefields. And this notion that there's going to be two armies that meet up at some, you know, point on the field and they, they exchange fire, that doesn't really happen. What we have these days is a never-ending series of occupations, insurgencies, and counterinsurgencies. Because battlefields are kind of an anachronism, aren't they? From a, an era where you had sort of, you know, armies that stood and then met. And by and large, we don't have that anymore. We don't really have armies. I suppose the North Korea, South Korea demilitarized zone might be considered a battlefield. But by and large, it doesn't happen like that anymore. And as we've seen, it's not even going to be insurgency, counterinsurgency, occupation, you know, groups of soldiers reacting to armed insurgents. What we're going to see is robots responding to armed insurgents and then dropping bombs and killing people and all that stuff. So whatever. Um, in news from the Olympics, uh, thanks to Harry Shearer on Le Show for hipping me to this, uh, there was a report that came out from The Independent in the UK about Olympic apparel that was made in abusive sweatshops. Uh, the Independent did an investigation, and this is from the article now. Uh, an investigation has uncovered widespread violations of workers' rights in Indonesia, where nine locally owned and managed factories have been contracted to produce Olympic shoes and clothing for Adidas, or Adidas, as they say over in Europe, the official sportswear partner of London 2012 and the British team. While the German company, which unveiled its Stella McCartney design kit for British athletes last month, hopes to make 100 million pounds from its Olympic lines, there's a lot of money to be made here, right? The mainly young female factory employees work up to 65 hours, 25 hours more than the standard working week, for desperately low pay. They also endure verbal and physical abuse, they allege, are forced to work overtime, and are punished for not reaching production targets. And as always, this is no surprise, this is nothing new, but it's, it sucks, and we should not allow it, and we should demand that, especially because the Olympics this year is all about, oh, this is the most ethical Olympics ever. Well, you know what? Apparently not. And it's all a question about how much they can sort of silence this with this PR push. And Adidas is going to start this push because it's all about, oh, we didn't know and we don't really understand and we aren't familiar with the rest of the blah, blah, blah. And, and we'll start investigating it, and they'll drag out the investigation, they'll try to get an independent perspective, and blah, and it'll just drag it out and drag it out, hope people stop paying attention, and eventually they'll just go back to doing whatever they were doing. And this is why we need a global perspective, we need a global uh, monitoring group of some kind that can be totally independent and nail these companies for violations of workers' rights, 
That's what the International Labor Organization is supposed to be doing, but it isn't able to do its job because the WTO reigns so supreme. It says, whatever, we don't care about workers' rights. We just want to get rid of barriers to free trade. Uh, and by the way, anybody who wants to give me any of this nonsense about how you say it, uh, people in the uh, UK will be like, oh, you don't say it uh, Adidas, you say it Adidas. No, you don't. Here's how I know you say it Adidas. My Adidas walk through constant doors and roam all over Coliseum Yeah, you hear him? He didn't say my Adidas. No, he said my Adidas, okay? And that's a pronunciation guide if ever I heard one. And then in news from uh, black people who got killed by white folks. Uh, actually, this is not about a woman who got killed by white folks. Uh, this is about a woman who killed a white person. Um, there's an article from The Advocate, which is about a woman named Cece McDonald. Uh, and she's a transgendered black woman uh, living in uh, Minneapolis, I think. Uh, and it ha- there's an incident that happened in June of last year. Uh, the advocate says it like this. As McDonald and her friends walked near the bar, two women and a man, all of them Caucasian, began to verbally harass the group, according to witnesses. McDonald says they called her and her friends the N-word, as well as faggots and chicks with dicks. Her roommate, Latvia Taylor, told the Minneapolis Star Tribunal, uh, Tribune that the man, Dean Schmitz, also asked McDonald, did you think you were going to rape somebody in those girl clothes? The group stopped, and McDonald told the trio that she wouldn't stand for their racist and transphobic attacks. Soon, one woman reportedly yelled, I'll take you on, bitch, and hit McDonald in the side of the face with a glass beer mug, lacerating her salivary gland and slicing her cheek through to the interior of her mouth. So, yeah. And then what happened next is murky uh, cops might call a what what cops might call a bar fight ensued with several more people joining in the melee. At the end, McDonald was lying in a pool of her own blood. Schmitz in a pool of his blood. Uh, he was a father of four. He had lost too much blood to survive. Uh, Schmitz, who was 47 years old, had been stabbed with a pair of fabric scissors that McDonald had in her purse. Um, McDonald first allegedly told Schmitz that told the police that Schmitz had run into her scissors as she was fighting back from an all-out assault on her, um, an act of protection that came with the ultimate cost. Later, she said it was a friend of hers who used the scissors to protect her. It's not clear if C.C. McDonald is sure exactly what happened, um, but she does know one thing. She isn't guilty of second-degree murder. Schmitz died before EMTs arrived. When police arrived, they, attest- they arrested McDonald and no one else. After she received 11 stitches in her face and waited three hours, the police interrogated her without counsel. Uh, after she signed a confession, she almost immediately recanted, according to the co-founder of the Minnesota Transgender Health Coalition's Shot Clinic and Syringe Exchange. Uh, several blogs and Minneapolis City Council member Cam Gordon later reported that the Hennepin County Medical Examiner found a Nazi swastika tattooed on Schmitz's chest, uh, and his brother Charles Pelfrey told the Minneapolis Star Tribune that hate speech type language coming from his brother wasn't a surprise. Quote, at times he can be like that, yes, Pelfrey said. It depends on his mood, unfortunately. But still, Prosecutor Michael Freeman has refused to drop the charges. So, is another example of someone who appears to have been acting out of self-defense, uh, a woman who's been targeted by a guy, and we talked last week about that woman in Florida who faced a similar situation, and um, yeah, she's been charged with second-degree murder, and and obviously it's really messed up that, you know, she stabbed this guy and he died, but it's also messed up that they were coming at C.C. McDonald. So, uh, yeah, that's that's messed up. She shouldn't be in prison. I mean, you know, I don't know. She, second degree murder seems harsh, right? It seems like she was fighting in self-defense and uh, I don't know. It just, ah, no, not second degree murder. Wrong. 
let's end current events with a positive story. This is awesome. I totally lolled when I heard about this. From the New York Times, blind man escapes house arrest in China. Uh, Cheng Guangcheng, uh, the blind rights lawyer who has been under extra-legal house arrest in his rural village for the past 19 months, has escaped from his heavily guarded home and is hiding in the capital. The Chinese officials said on Friday, I just love the idea that this dude's in house arrest in China. And let's be serious. Like, this isn't the type of thing that the Julian Assange is facing where there's like a few guards outside some palatial house, right? This is China. They don't take house arrest lightly, yeah? You're, this, and, and a blind dude escaped from house arrest. That's so awesome. The escape would represent a significant public relations challenge to the Chinese government, which has long sought to deny reports that local officials in Dongshigu village were keeping Mr. Chen and his wife uh, locked in their home, even though there are no legal charges against him. On Friday afternoon, a video appeared on YouTube with Mr. Chen describing his life under house arrest. The video, in the form of an appeal to Prime Minister Wen Jiaobo, uh, detailed the abuse that he and his family suffered during their confinement and demanded that those responsible be brought to justice. Now, as people who are familiar with China know, there's very little chance anyone in China is going to see that because, you know, Chinese government has a real tight clamp on the way that uh, the internet gets used there, but I just think it's awesome. Uh, he just, It's awesome that he got out and is delivering this message to people, not awesome that he's been abused and under house arrest. He described how his daughter was followed to school by three guards every day and guards had kicked his wife for hours on end. Quote, Prime Minister Wen, you owe the people an explanation, he said. Are these atrocities the result of local officials violating the law or a result of orders from the top leadership? And you know what I think about this is probably more of that. It, it, the, the, the Prime Minister will say, oh, it's pe- you know, it's a few guards that went too far. And meanwhile, it's probably the case that people up at the top say, I want this guy crushed, kick his wife around, and... Uh, or, you know, it's it's a plausible deniability. They'll say something like, I want him silenced. And then the local officials will know what that means is do everything you have to do to try to, you know, crush his family. And then they'll, the officials will say, oh, no, we never meant that. We just meant, you know, coerce them or whatever. Uh, let's talk about economics. Respect First things first, let's talk about robots on the stock market. There's a new story about this trading uh, cable from New York to London. There's more news. There's... I can't get over this. This is like the biggest thing in finance now. It's like this cable. Oh, my God. Well, there's a new competitor, a small company called Perseus. This is from Business Week. A small company called Perseus Telecom, in partnership with a subsidiary of India's big telecompany, Reliance Communications, has announced the launch of Quanta, a fiber optic cable stretching from Long Island to the UK with an expected round-trip execution time of less than 60 milliseconds by the end of 2012. Rather than build a brand new cable but like Hibernia Atlantic did, Perseus made improvements to an existing cable called the Flag Atlantic One North, 
or FA-1 North, a small portion of a 17,000-mile underwater fiber optic cable stretching from the east coast of North America to Japan. Until now, the FA-1 North was the second fastest transatlantic cable after the AC-1. To make the FA-1 North faster, Perseus first upgraded the cable's submarine optical systems, which essentially means equipping it with faster lasers. They're using lasers to do these stock transactions. It's true. The Star Wars Star Trek vision of the future is all happening right now, but we can't see it because it's all happening in underwater cables with lasers and trying to prevent it from shark attacks. So it's all going down, but we can't see it because it's all being used for trading stocks a little bit faster. The company also improved the backhaul systems, connecting the core cable to various landmark sub-networks that spread to trading exchanges and data centers. It will next insert a giant router a few hundred miles off the coast of Nova Scotia to build a shorter route to New York. And I just love the idea of people in Nova Scotia being like, what are you doing with that big machinery? And he's like, shut up, go back to your fishing. And then like burying this router and lasers. And there's like, I can just imagine they open up the cable and there's like little tiny robots fighting with each other. Like, get out of my way. I'm trying to get this stock information back to New York. Uh, with the help of submersible vehicles, a grappling hook hauled the cable off the bottom of the North Atlantic about 10,000 feet below the surface and inserted the branching unit described as a Y-shaped device roughly the size of a conference room table. I just love... It's just this crazy whole thing. Oh, God, we're all going to die. Meanwhile, Business Week also reports that Apple profits are soaring! Uh, Apple Incorporated profit almost doubled last quarter, reflecting robust demand for the iPhone in China and purchases of a new version of the iPad, allaying the growth concerns that sliced shares 12% in two weeks. Net income in the fiscal second quarter climbed 94% to $11.6 billion or $12.30 a share as sales rose 59% to $39.2 billion. Cupertino, California-based Apple said today in a statement, analysts had predicted profit of 10.02 dollars a share on revenue of 36.9 billion data compiled by Bloomberg show now I want to know are they factoring the cost of the kidney that that kid sold in China because that's evidence of really good demand for the iPhone in China robust demand in fact I'd say it's more than robust demand when people are selling body parts to get your iPhone that's a success story. I hope somebody in the marketing department of Apple got a bonus for that. Like, we're going to give you an extra $2,000 for every body part people in China sell off in order to get this iPhone that we're trying to get them to buy. All right. Good job. I had a kid sell his foot. High five. Yeah. Oh, I get a fat bonus for each foot. Um, I mentioned last week that I found this awesome new website called Economy Watch, and I've been watching it very closely. You see what I did there? It's funny, isn't it? It's Economy I'm watching Economy Watch. Uh, they had an article this week about Islamic finance, and uh, yeah, there are two central precepts of Islamic finance, absolute prohibition on charging interest on financial transactions, and high moral standards on the part of lenders and borrowers. And the point they're making is that it's possible that this could present an interesting challenge to the sort of Western hegemonic view of finance, which is burying cables and lasers and shark attacks and, uh, you know, do whatever you got to do and kicking old people out of their homes and, and charging crazy interest. Uh, 
Islamic finance thus contrasts with the current dominant system based on interest-bearing debt in which risks are theoretically transferred to debt holders, but in practice are socialized during crises. Other things being equal, most economists will agree that debt finance leads to greater instability rather than equity finance. Uh, debt finance results in greater instability than equity finance does. Uh, it follows from the second major tenet of Islamic finance that if people adhered strictly to its ethical requirements, there would be fewer moral hazard problems in Islamic banking, but whether any particular system is efficient in avoid avoiding moral hazard is a matter of practice rather than theory, of course. Most people would agree that historically Christian morality played an important role in the rise of Western capitalism. Secular capitalism, however, has experienced an erosion of values whereby the financial sector has put its own above those of the rest of society. This is because we all, and now I'm not quoting the Economy Watch website anymore, we all go with um, wealth of nations and we ignore the theory of moral sentiments. I've said it before, blah, blah, blah. And finally, in the economics section today, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Frontline, which is a really cool documentary uh, series on PBS in the United States, and they do a lot of great work. All their shows, well, most of their shows are available online. I don't know how many, what percentage. A lot of their shows, you can watch the whole thing online. I've talked about and linked to The Wounded Platoon, which is a really good piece they did about veterans coming home to the U.S. from Iraq and Afghanistan, and... Um, they did a. They they've just launched this four-part series, and I'm so excited. I've only watched a little bit of the first part, but uh, and they're doing. I think the second part's only due out on the first of May or something. But it's all about Wall Street and finance and money and power. And it's called Front uh, Money, Power, and Wall Street. And I'm so excited. Here, let me play you a little teaser at the beginning of the first part. Tonight, part one: Money, Power, and Wall Street. The clouds are still hanging over the global economy and they're still filled with risk. Inside the epic story of the global financial crisis. Here we are three years plus after, and very little has changed. Where we are now. Wall Street got bailed out, and Main Street didn't. And how we got here. Let's put together a portfolio of credit risk. Other banks were taking these ideas and applying them in ways that they'd never expected. Once the seed was planted, there wasn't any stopping it. $36 billion in bonuses this year. This kind of cult of more, 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 grow, grow, grow. The economy is melting. The Bush administration is leaving. Obama gets a real glimpse of the future. Disaster's coming. There's real panic in the marketplace. You may have just made the decision to destroy the world. These banks transfer risk across the Atlantic outside the purview of American regulators. They turn into a Frankenstein monster. Occupy everything! In an election year, Wall Street got away with bank robbery. Is the global financial system any safer? This crisis really never ended. Tonight, part one, money, power, and Wall Street. I know it sounds like some sort of Michael Bay blockbuster movie, but trust me, they do really good work. You've got to watch this. Frontline is awesome, and I can't say enough about how excited I am about this new series, and uh, you should definitely check it out. And uh, that question, by the way, is Wall Street any better now? No, the answer is no. We did almost nothing. Russ Feingold voted against the bill that was the Dodd-Frank bill, which was supposed to be the big congressional response, because Feingold said it wasn't going to be doing much to change Wall Street, and it didn't, and nothing's changed, and they're 
just doing exactly what they've been doing before, and no one got punished, no one's been sent to jail, and it's more of this fallacy of Empire's ineptitude, and we didn't know what was going on, and Jamie Dimon and, and, and all the rest of the CEOs of these financial firms went up to Congress and said, well, nobody could have seen it coming. Not true. People did see it coming. What about Brooksley Bourne? Shut up. I hate you people. Wait, no, I don't hate them. I hate everything they do. It's an important difference. Ugh! Let's talk about education. Uh, the New York Times had a really interesting article about student debt recently. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really, I guess I don't understand how student debt works because from what I understand, it th there's a lot of banks that get really crazy paid off of making students take out loans in order to fund their education. And that seems messed up because for the rest of their lives, these kids are going to be in debt paying off their student loans. And as Michael Moore pointed out in Capitalism, A Love Story, we, we that means that they are unable to take risks in terms of trying new jobs, starting up companies and the rest of it because they're working to pay off these loans that they took out for years and years and years. And as Hajun Chang points out in 23 Things I Don't Tell You About Capitalism, uh, that, that, that no that you know uh, it's going to be all about the free market well that limits the degree to which people are willing to take risks and try new jobs and if you have a stable safety net as a lot of European countries do you, it's not the end of the world when you lose a job I mean it's bad but it's not in the United States if you lose a job you lose your health insurance you lose uh, you know uh, obviously a lot of your pay but everything is tied into your job and when you pile debt and heavy loans on top of that then you just end up in a crushing situation where one medical emergency or one layoff can just mean disaster. Not to mention, when you pile on top of that, this, you know, gender dynamic whereby men think that their job and that as the providers of the family, if you don't have the job, then you're nothing. Uh, it means that a lot of people suffer these weird psychological problems. And I'd actually be interested to see if there's been a rise in suicides in the U.S. having to do with economic crisis. Because uh, like we've, seen, we've seen that in Italy and Ireland and Greece. And I'd be very interested to know if there's a sort of trend going on in the U.S. with people committing suicide because they just can't handle the stress of not having money and being in debt and all the rest of it. Anyway, New York Times article about student debt says, for the past three decades, increases in college tuition have outpaced the overall rate of inflation and increases in room and board have risen even faster. That has driven a substantial increase in the volume of student loan debt. American students took out twice the value of student loans in 2011, about $112 billion, as they did a decade before after adjusting for inflation. Overall, Americans now owe $1 trillion in student loans. This is different from a number of years ago, said Senator Ron Wyden, an Oregon Democrat who said consult constituents frequently want to discuss these costs. Ten years ago, 15 years ago, college funding was a significant investment, like buying a car. Today, it is the second largest investment that you're making. And I guess I just got lucky by going to college. You know, I basically went for free because there was this awesome deal in Florida where if you got a certain grade point average, they would pay your way through college. And so I went through new college for, I mean, you know, I'd pay for books and the rest of it, but I, my tuition was pretty much paid for because I was going to school in state and I had this scholarship and it was great. And I just feel so bad for my students who are going out there into the world and having to take on all this debt and all these loans and who knows how long it'll take to pay them back. You miss a payment, they charge fees and penalties and the interest just keeps going up and they garnish your wages and and they'll lie to people there this thing in this article is about you know this collection agency was lying to the the, the 
poor kid who had to pay his work back, uh, his loans back, and they were like, you're going to have to garnish your wages and like take all of his paycheck or like half of it. And it's like, that's messed up, man. It's not that these banks are hurting to get this money back. It's just that's the, it's like a gangster system. You don't want to pay up. Maybe we'll break your thumbs and you understand this is the situation you're in. You don't negotiate with me. Like in Rounders, I tell you what it's like. Let's talk about something happier like killer robots. Where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? There is an article on MSNBC this week about robots and moral agency. This is really interesting. Uh, a new experiment shows how likely it will be for humans to place blame on their mechanical servants as though the robots were people. The social psychology experiment, which involved a robot programmed to tell a lie, showed college students holding the robot morally accountable for its actions more often than not. The college students did not consider Robo-V to be, uh, as being morally accountable on a human level, but they judge the robot as being somewhere between a human and a vending machine. I think that's fair. We'd all agree with that, right? Robots are in between humans and vending machines. Uh, many became noticeably upset and confrontational when the robot lied about how many items the student had found in a scavenger hunt, preventing them from winning a $20 prize. I love this. Noticeably upset and confrontational. Presumably with the robot. About $20. I need that $20 to pay off my student loans, you stupid robot! Like, trying to choke the robot. Ah, you cannot crush my larynx. I don't even have one. I breathe through these vents in the back of my head. You suck, robot! Most argued with Robo-V. First of all, I, 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 I've never had a conversation with a robot. I, I mean, Cleverbot, I've done a little of the chats, but it, I felt like an idiot, so I stopped after like a minute. Uh... I just can't imagine arguing with a robot. If you ever find me arguing with a robot, it just seems wrong. I don't want to judge people who argue with robots, but it seems ridiculous because it's a robot. It's in between a human and a vending machine. Am I going to argue with a vending machine? I mean, I'll kick it and get mad. Give me my dollar back. But I'm not going to try to pretend like it's capable of... I mean, there's no point in arguing with a vending machine, is there? Anyway... Uh, uh, Heather Gary, a doctoral student in developmental psychology at the University of Washington in Seattle. Some accused Robo-V of lying or cheating. <laughs> You're cheating, you stupid robot! Uh, there have been a handful of accidental deaths at robotic hands so far, and in none of the cases was the blame placed on the robot. But the experiment suggests that future humanoid robots capable of socially interacting with humans will face moral judgments. And then the article linked to this other thing from innovationnewsdaily.com, which kind of scared the hell out of me, to be honest. Um, it's called A History of Robot Violence, and it goes through all these cases of where people have been killed by robots. And uh, there's some co there's some confusion, some question about, okay, which should really be considered the first case of a human being killed by a robot, because there are certain machines, you know, and it's, okay, the robot didn't choose to kill this person, whatever. But this is from that article. The first human victim of a robot-related accident may have been Robert Williams, a 25-year-old assembly line worker who died when a robot's arm slammed into his head at a Ford Motor casting plant in Flat Rock, Michigan on January 25, 1979. That was my birthday. I was turning three years old that day. Ugh. His death came when he was asked to climb into a storage rack to retrieve some parts because the malfunctioning robot was not working fast enough. What's up with that? Robot doesn't work fast enough. The robot's being lazy, and this guy, this poor dude, Robert Williams, is sent in to clear some parts away or whatever, and the robot is like, Ah, you're not doing my job! 
crash his head open. Oh, it's so messed up. Perhaps the most bizarre incident of robot-related deaths came during a South African military exercise in October 2007. An anti-aircraft cannon capable of automatically locking onto flying targets killed nine soldiers and wounded 14 when it began firing uncontrollably. That's messed up. We can't control it. Maybe you shouldn't have robots locking onto flying targets. I mean, what the hell? I... <gasps> just let the robots do it. What could go wrong? Oh, nine people could die and 14 could get wounded. And as I said before, wounded could mean anything from like scratched open their hand or like took off their, I was going to say three legs, took off their legs. If they had three legs and they took them all off, that would be really messed up. Not only did this person lose their legs, but they had three. Now they have none. That's so messed up. I don't mean to make light, by the way, of people who've lost their legs. That's obviously not funny, but it would be funny if it were three legs the person lost. I better move on. Boston Globe had an article this week about mind control robots. Uh, Not robots that control our minds, but the opposite, which is the way it should happen. We control robots with our minds. Yes! Uh, And this is cool because it helps paralyzed people. Uh, Swiss scientists have demonstrated how a partially paralyzed person can control a robot using brain signals alone. And that's so cool because it means the possibility of like an exoskeleton you could put the paralyzed person in and then they can move around and stuff using just their mind. That's so awesome. The team at Switzerland's Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne says the experiment takes them a step closer to enabling immobile patients to easily interact with their surroundings using a robot avatar. Tuesday's demonstration involved a partially tetraplegic patient at a hospital in the southern Swiss town of Sion who imagined lifting his fingers to direct a robot at the university 100 kilometers away. How cool is that? You could be like, yeah, lift. And then he's like, I control this institute now. And he's like grabbing people by the neck. I'm just kidding. He didn't actually do that. But I think that's really cool. That's what we should be using robots for. That's what we should be putting our money. Not in robots that can lock onto flying targets and kill people. What's up with that? Come on. Speaking of the wrong use of technology, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a stand here, okay? I'm opposed to this. Uh, San Jose Mercury News, a lot of people have probably already heard about this. Uh, There's this group of billionaires that's going to go out and mine asteroids now. Uh, The mega million dollar plan is to use commercially built robotic ships to squeeze rocket fuel and valuable minerals like platinum. You want to see if I've got the minerals? Uh, valuable minerals like platinum and gold out of the lifeless rocks that routinely whiz by Earth. One of the company founders predicts they could have their version of a space-based gas station up and running by 2020. <sighs> Personally, think, I, I think there's more important things we could use our money for than a space-based gas station. Because what's next? I'll tell you what's next. Next, we're going to have BP getting involved in this, and then they're going to cut corners, and they're going to have... Uh, oil chunks falling out of the sky on us and they'll go we didn't know what was happening and we'll go after somebody who who deleted emails and we'll go what happened tell us bp messed up didn't they and he'll go no they didn't do anything and and it'll all be it'll come down it'll end in tears i mean i know some people think okay we got to go out and find minerals elsewhere and it's an inexhaustible supply but you know what i think this is messed up like we're not we're not content to just destroy all the and use up all the resources here on Earth. Now we're going to go out and astro- mine asteroids. And then what's next? We'll mine the moon. We'll blow up the moon like they said on Mr. Show. <laughs> this is a picture of me blowing up the moon. Yay! Uh, I think it's messed up. I think we ought to try to find some way to come to harmony with our environments instead of just mine everything. I bet I could mine this child's head and get some. There's a modest proposal for you. 
Uh, and speaking of stupid things from the world of business, Business Week had another article this week. I'm not making this up. Oh, my God. <laughs> There's a company that's... I'll just read it. <clears throat> Australian scent specialist Air Aroma has replicated the smell of a fresh-out-of-the-box Apple MacBook Pro for three Melbourne-based artists who will diffuse the fragrance at their exhibit running from April 20th to May 12th. Researchers unwrap the box in a lab to capture and recreate the scent, which has hints of plastic wrap, ink on cardboard, paper and plastic components, and the aluminum laptop. I think what was so unique was the request of recreating the smell of technology. The desire to recreate the experience was very important to them, the, of opening up a new present, says Rebecca Ebache, Chief Operating Officer of Air Aroma USA. This is ridiculous. This is more of that unboxing garbage where people videotape themselves opening up, you know, computers and new technology and stuff. It's pathetic. It's fetishizing not even the object, but the the, the experience of having the new object. It's that whole getting instead of having thing. This is more of that uh, acceleration of the notion that, like, it, it's not about having anymore. It's never been about having. It's always been about getting. But now it's about just accelerate that, that moment of getting fresh out of the box. Oh, the way it smells. This is going to be a cologne and a perfume watch. And I'll bet you it'll work because there'll be nerds who will go, oh, you smell great. What's this scent you're wearing? And the woman will go, this is fresh out of the box uh, iPhone uh, cologne and uh, oh, it smells great can I just sit here and sniff your neck all night <sighs> and finally uh, Sarah Palin's back in the news yes I feel like I'm okay in talking about Sarah Palin now because for a while I was trying to tone it down and be like okay I'm just giving her more attention than she deserves we gotta just hope she'll go away you know what I think she's been politically neutralized enough to now celebrate making fun of her because it, once again she has demonstrated her unwillingness to be either honest or informed and you know to be honest I don't know which is worse the fact that she would be intentionally wrong about this stuff or that she would just be so clueless and yet so publicly echoed and welcomed onto TV despite the fact she either doesn't know what she's talking about or she's deliberately lying about all this stuff and it just baffles me because if, if I went on TV and I said President Obama has six heads and he's an alien from Neptune people would go you're a lunatic you don't get to be on TV anymore but she goes on TV and she says things that are clearly wrong and that she ought to know should have known I'm going to make that a meme should have known and in the future when you hear me say should have known You'll know what I'm referring to because she should have known that she was wrong here. Okay, so what are you talking about, Eric? Here's what I'm talking about. Uh, there, Obama came out with this new thing where he wanted to limit the amount of the hours of work that kids could do on farms because he's worried that kids are spending too much time working on farms. Now, it it's not it doesn't pertain to the farm that your family owns. So if if your mom and pop run a farm, you you can keep doing all the work you would have done, slopping the pigs and all the rest of it, baling hay. Uh and, and it has nothing to do with family farms that you work at with your parents, okay? But, so this is what the Christian Science Monitor says. It's true that the Labor Department is working up new regulations bearing on under age 16 agricultural work. It has been working on them for some years now with lots of input from farm groups, which are very much worried about that ending farm chores thing. 
That's how they wrote it in the Christian Science Monitor. So in that sense, Palin is resounding a previously rung alarm. However, quote, the proposed regulations would not apply to children working on farms owned by their parents, says the Labor Department press release from last August announcing publication of the proposed law revisions in the Federal Register from last August. This has been public record for months, almost a whole year now. And then Palin goes on Facebook and she writes, the new regulations, quote, would prevent children from working on their own family farms. And Christian Science Monitor says, this would not appear to be correct unless there is some definition of family farm that we non-farm workers aren't familiar with. And of course, it doesn't end there for her. She goes on to talk about, this is more evidence to Washington elites trying to tell family farms how to do things. And mama grizzlies aren't going to take it. Shut up, Sarah Palin. I hate you. No, I don't hate you. I hate everything you do. There's an important difference. Let's talk about hip hop. There was a really interesting interview. Uh, Davy D interviewed Jeru to the Damaja, and I've, he's one of those people that I've always meant to sort of get to know more, but I've never listened to his music much. Uh, he was down with Guru, and if you don't know Guru, oh, you are sleeping. Uh, Guru is a founding member of Gangstar, and uh, he and Jared the Damager came out with some really good music. Um, anyway, uh, they're in an interview, and they were talking about the hologram of Tupac, which I mentioned last week. And uh, Jared the Damager and Davey D, they were sort of both talking together about this. And they pointed out that, I mean, look, again, like uh, uh, Tupac's mom, Afini Shakur, said... She gave the go-ahead for the hologram, and 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 I, I'm not going to blame her for what happened with it. And I don't I don't really have any beef with it in and of itself. But the point they made was, and one of them said, "There's no soul in the hologram." And they mentioned that it's not really Tupac. There are things missing from the way he was represented. He went out there and said, "What's up, Coachella?" And as one of them said, he would have shouted out Trayvon. He would have cursed out the president if it was really Tupac. And and it's true that in some, in, there's no way that the hologram will ever really be Tupac. But it's an attempt to try to give us a resurrection of Tupac. But you're only resurrecting part of him. And that's an important distinction. Uh, so I'm nervous. As I said last week, I'm nervous about what this is going to mean for you know ads or you know, whatever happens next with these holograms. But I, I don't want to be completely naysayer about it. Anyway, I, I just think that was really interesting, and I'll link to the interview with uh, Jared the Damage and David D. It's a really interesting interview. They talk for like half an hour about all sorts of things, what it means to be old school, and uh, how hip hop has changed in the last 20 years, and all sorts of other stuff. But this week, I want to put some focus on DJ Crush, who is an awesome hip-hop DJ. He's been in the game for like 20 years now, uh, maybe less than that. I don't know, 15 probably. I think his first album came out in like 94 or something. Anyway, uh, he uh, I'm going to play two tracks, little excerpts from two tracks. Uh, one of them is called Shin Sakai, and it's from his uh, album My Light, which is probably his best album. It has a lot of uh, guest spots, uh, uh, Black Thoughts on it, and Most Deaf, and uh, it's got some really really good variety and people talking about what the future will bring and stuff. The first music track uh, is a track called Shin Sakai and it has this Japanese rapper named Rhino on it and it's just a really cool track so let me play a little bit of that. Yo, kisamo no tokutobi okina shin sekai ni tokuge kita 
and I have no idea what he's saying on there. He's rapping in Japanese, but I just think it's so cool. And you can hear, hopefully you can hear it, the way that the sound is so carefully sliced up and, and doubled up and, and the 16th notes are, are sort of made so fine. You can just tell the DJ Crush is in love with the vinyl and he does such good work with it and manipulating the sounds and, and adding just the right touch here and there. Um, yeah, I just think DJ Crush does a really good job. You should definitely check him out. He's got a lot of different albums. He's got one called Zen uh, and his first album was one just called Crush and it's much more soulful than his later stuff. He definitely started playing around with more scratching and, and he did a crash with DJ Crush on My Light and like, he's just done a lot of good work. Uh, anyway, this first album, Crush, had, had a lot of depth in it, a lot of soul and there's a track on it that's one of my favorite all-time hip-hop instrumentals. It's called On the Double and it just sounds so gorgeous. It's got the bass, it's got the drums. Just listen to this. And the horns. Oh my god, I love this track. And again, like all the pieces of the puzzle are put together so well. There's one on that album called Mixed Nuts where uh, there's somebody scratching and there's somebody playing the piano and they're sort of playing off each other. One person, you know, DJ Crush will scratch and then the dude on the piano will sort of play the way that he scratched and it just sounds so cool. So uh, if you're not familiar with DJ Crush, definitely check him out. Uh, most of the lyrics are either really sort of intelligent or at least you know, just sort of about day-to-day -day life that, you know, we all have stuff in common and he does a really good job of bridging the divide between cultures and mixes and stuff from Japan but institutes elements from hip-hop uh, and it's just a really cool example of uh, multicultural hip-hop that spans continents. So check him out. Let's talk about the code of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the ending is near but don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. This week's quote comes from Zora Neale Hurston, who was an African-American writer. She was the author of a novel called Their Eyes Are Watching God, which is one of the greatest novels in American history. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, this quote comes to us from her 1939 novel, Moses, Man of the Mountain. She said, Silence is all the genius a fool has, and it is one of the things that a smart man knows how to use when he needs it. And that's something I should be reminded of, especially because I know that during this show, I uh, kind of race through things and I'm, I'm always talking because I'm horrified of dead air. And I know I need to tone it back a little bit because uh, it, it's probably like being pulled by the neck for, you know, an hour. And it's sort of an hour now is the standard length of this podcast. I originally intended it to be 45 minutes. Actually, I think I originally said it was going to be half an hour, but it's just kept going and going. I keep finding too much interesting stuff to talk about. I don't know what to say people it's your fault anyway that's it for this week uh, show notes and links to everything in this week's syncast are on my blog didactic synapse which can be found at fbesp.org slash synapse uh, my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski which is at fbesp.org links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff I've done shout outs this week to turtle502 who favorited my tweet last week and Kartik I don't know your last name but uh, we hung out last night that was a lot of fun and cheers to you if you're listening I don't know 
I'll send you an email, let you know I gave you a shout out, but I, I won't blame you if you don't listen. So in that case, I'm talking to nobody. It's like I'm arguing with a robot. Listen, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out or maybe I stumble over my words or something, but I don't know what to say, people. I'm a busy man. Deal with it, okay? Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Make sure you get in touch with feedback or questions or news articles. If you find something interesting, send it to me at esp at fbesp.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.